When I was a kid, I wanted to be a basketball player when I grew up, and now I run a digital marketing company. Hi, I'm Ben Hanani. Welcome to How Do You Do, a podcast featuring creative guests sharing the nuances of their process. Just a quick reminder to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts is the most helpful thing you can do for the podcast. My guest today is Jordan Benafshea. Jordan is the founder of IcePop, a digital marketing firm helping great products and companies grow. He previously worked in product at Tinder and was a part of the founding team at Verishop. He studied computer science and business administration at USC, which is where Jordan and I first became friends. Without further ado, welcome to the pod, Jordan. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me. Of course. You are my go-to for all things in the tech world, and it's it's a real pleasure to have you on. We'll start real quick by touching on your background. You started in product management, and you are now in digital marketing. For us lay people who don't know what product management means, can you give us a quick primer on that, and then what inspired you to focus on digital marketing and how you acquired that skill set? Because as I understand, there are some... Sure. Um, so yeah, at a very high level of product management, I would say is um, the area of practice of trying to represent the customer in a business. So trying to understand what the customer's needs are, trying to understand what solutions they need and building it for them. Um, but you know, the reality is also that there's business needs and it's balancing that. So how can we build solutions for the customer? And how do we make money off that as a company? And how do we kind of grow the business? And most great products that deliver good on our promise to the customers end up being able to build a really big business, you know, charging for that. Um, in terms of product management versus growth and kind of how that transition happened. So actually one of my first internships ever, I um, got to do a little bit of Facebook ads, um, like my freshman year of college. Um, which was pretty incredible. And since that internship, I was always kind of interested in growth. I had run Facebook ads, Google ads for some friends from some family with businesses, but I hadn't really done it professionally since that internship. And when I was at Verishop, we had um, built up a platform for nine months. We had a brand marketing team, but we didn't really have anyone with like performance marketing or digital marketing experience at the company. So I decided to kind of volunteer and say, hey, maybe I can fill in this gap until we go and hire a head of growth. Um, and so I brought on a, a very big agency in Los Angeles to help me, Mute6. And uh, you know, with their team, uh, me and a data analyst at, at Verishop, we all ran the growth initiatives at Verishop. Um, and you're right, most people uh, think it's kind of interesting that I've gone from product to, to growth or to marketing. Most people do the opposite. They go from marketing and they try to transition into product. It happened at Tinder all the time. Um, but I actually think it's a, it's a great progression because if you're going to market to customers, being able to understand how they respond to an ad and that whole funnel of coming to the website, putting in their email address, buying something, it's all product related. And the way I look at it is performance marketing is product on crack um, because with product, it might take you three to six months to launch an idea, to test an idea, to get data. With performance marketing, I can have an ad idea 
and within a week spend $2,000 and get my answers for my tests. So the, the feedback cycle is actually much faster um, than product. So this, this is a skill set you've acquired and I'm curious what inspired you rather than continuing to see it through at Veroshop or be in-house for a different startup, what inspired you to, you know, take the plunge, do it full-time at your own firm? Cause that's, that's a big leap. Yeah. I think I always in the back of my mind knew I wanted to run my own company. And I would say the past, I don't know, five, six years, I've been trying to figure out what that looks like. Um, and every step I've taken has kind of been, you know, moving towards that. So I wanted to work at Tinder, obviously because it was an amazing company, but also to see how an amazing company of that size operates. Um, and my next step was actually, was going to be to start my own company, but then Veroshop came around and I saw I could join at the ground level. And I'm like, cool, I can learn from amazing operators, from amazing people, join the company month one. It's basically like I'm starting the company, right? I was on the founding team. Um, and so the next kind of natural step was starting my own thing. Um, I think the pandemic accelerated everything for me a little bit faster than if it didn't happen. Um, because, you know, we live in an amazing community in LA where if you're known for something or good at something, your phone number kind of gets shared around very quickly. And so when the pandemic was happening, um, a lot of companies uh, and, and business operators were getting my phone number saying, hey, our retail sales are dead because of the pandemic. We need to go all in on performance marketing, on, on digital marketing. Can you help us? And um, it got to a point where I'm like, it would be silly to turn this down. I need to follow this. And uh, that's when I left Veroshop to start my own company. For those of us not as familiar in this space, give us some background on what the term performance marketing means and how IcePop goes about what's your approach at ice pop toward it it's a great question so i think performance marketing is a subset of digital marketing um, that really focuses on the outcome um, the outcome that you know is measured by revenue as opposed to just brand so i think in in the marketing world there's a bunch of different functions you know and they're all super important to getting a company to the next level um, but what we sp specifically focus on are Facebook ads that will drive sales or Google ads that will drive sales, not so much the ads that are trying to um, just bring brand awareness to a company. Um, so, you know, I think there's a lot of great firms that do amazing shoots, like high production, um, really interesting things to kind of like go viral and grab people's attention. Right now, what we're focused on is more of the ads that are um, just focus on getting that purchase and they don't require all that, you know, big production and, and, um, you know, spend to kind of get the results we're looking for. It sounds like a lot of what you do revolves around analyzing metrics and it seems very data driven. Inherently, I think marketing seems like a balance of both data and then approaching it with your own creativity and your own unique solutions and seeing what works. I'm curious, how do you balance those two things? It's, it's obviously very tempting to just latch on to data that proves a hypothesis. By the same token, I imagine there's, there could be some success from trying new things every now and then. So how do you, how do you factor in data into your approach at IcePop? Yeah, I, I think you nailed it. It's, it's a balance um, because one idea that works doesn't necessarily always scale up or sometimes 
you tap it out, right? You spend so much money on it that you need to find that new angle, a new pitch. So I think it always comes back to the customer, the user. We try to understand what problem are we solving for them and how can we explain that to them and how can we get them excited about it? Um, and then, you know, my creative team and other creative teams I collaborate with kind of jump in and kind of help us come up with concepts. We greenlit some of them. We, you know, build some of them out. We test them and we scale up the ones that work well, right? We, we do analyze the metrics. We're looking at revenue on ad spend and click through rates and video through rates and all those things. Um, but we do understand that you can't just take this one ad that worked well and change the background and run it again. Um, you do need to constantly come up with hits to keep this thing going. Um, so I think the interesting piece is there's different types of ads that we look at personally. We, for example, bucket it um, in, in several ways. There's aspirational ads that sell you on a lifestyle. There are UGC ads that kind of are a little bit more relatable. Um, there are product shots. There are uh, educational ads. And so we look at it from that lens, right? Like which of these buckets is working for this company um, and which part of the funnel? And can we double down on that in that context? Makes sense. I, I'm fascinated by the role that data plays in these kinds of decisions. I remember when we were at USC, I was in a college class and there was a guest speaker from Amazon Studios who came by. And I remember just before this class, I'd watched a TED talk that was kind of criticizing Amazon's approach to data, at least on the content side. And it was using the example of how Amazon's early offering of the show Alpha House was one of their first original series. And it was a political show. It was a comedy around four people or whatever versus Netflix who came out with House of Cards. Like Al Alpha House, I don't think many people have ever heard of. Obviously many people know of House of Cards. Um, and that was a completely different show. Amazon did a, a comedy. Netflix did an hour long focusing on one politician. And uh, I remember I asked the guy about this. I was like, I saw this TED talk, you know, uh, talking about approach to data. And he, <laughs> I think he was a little offended. And he, he replied, it, it doesn't take, it's like, it's not rocket science that if you take a great director like David Fincher and an actor as established as Kevin Spacey and put them together, you're going to have a good product. So I'm always fascinated by, um, you know, seeing like, okay, let's look at what works, but also where, what are the opportunities to go outside the box? So it's, it's interesting to hear you say that to put this, to put this all into tangible terms though, what let's, let's take these buckets you're talking about and apply them to actual work you've done. Sure. Can you walk us through the process of like, what does success look like in your ice pop uh, approach with one, maybe one client who you've already seen the process work A to Z. Sure. Um, yeah, I guess, you know, one example is a beauty brand I work with um, where, you know, we're handling, again, their paid social advertising, their Facebook, their Instagram ads, their Google ads, their SEO, even helping a little bit on the email side. Um, and so I think we, we take this like holistic approach again of one, what's the value proposition of our products that we're trying to sell? So for this specific brand, it's clean beauty. Um, they have a regimen that they try to get people to use these certain products in this, you know, certain order to, you know, get a certain, uh, you know, glow or, or whatever they're trying to pitch people on. Um, and so the way that we think about it again is 
let's get some real experts, um, influencers, beauty folks to talk about the products, to try them, to give us their honest reviews. We can make some UGC ads. We'll create other ads that are focused on the ingredients and highlight those to customers. We'll create other ads that are from the founder speaking about the product. Um, and a, again, a, a bunch of different buckets and we test them against different audiences. So one audience we have is a clean beauty audience where we say, Hey, Facebook, help us target folks who are um, using other brands that are similar to the one that we're, we're building. Or um, for example, people who live in certain cities or have a certain household income, we can use that. Then we also target folks who um, maybe aren't already using skincare and we're trying to convince them to use skincare. And then sometimes we also have an audience that's super broad and we tell Facebook, hey, you guys have a ton of data that we don't even have access to. Um, let's see what you come up with. And so we take these four or five creative concepts, we put them in different audiences and we try to see which resonates with, which, with each audience. And so what's super interesting is that like, you might have a winner of one ad in one audience and then a completely different winner in a different audience. And that's okay, that's, that's a good thing. Um, and you know, that's on the Facebook side, how we approach it. On the Google side, it's a little bit different. On the Google side, you're not trying to convince someone to try something they didn't think they needed. On the Google side, people are looking for something. You just have to convince them that you're the one to use, not the competitor. And the approach there is a lot more analytical, I would say. The approach there is, you know, how much do we want to bid, cost per click, um, you know, what search terms do we want to show up for, what's our copy that we want to kind of show for each of these um, topics, what landing pages are we driving people to? Are we driving them to purchase the product or to educate them about the product? Um, and then, you know, taking a full cycle on the on the email side, how do we welcome someone into the brand? How do we tell them the story after they've signed up for, you know, our email on the Facebook ads? Um, and so it has to be a holistic approach. You're not going to get the results you want if you're just doing Facebook ads. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but that's how it kind of comes together for a brand. I see. And we were talking the other day about, to touch specifically on the Google ads point about how, you know, I was looking to buy a quarter zip to work out in. And I just, I think Nike has done a great job, especially with their app, where I think as, as a consumer, I, I think, okay, let me start with Nike, see what they have. And I looked and it was, it was more expensive than what I wanted to pay for the quarter zip. Nothing was on sale. So I just Googled, I think I Googled Nike quarter zip to see maybe if I could find Nike, but on a competitor's website. And instead what I ended up purchasing was an Asics, uh, mm -hmm. quarter zip because I think for whatever reason, Asics doesn't have the same brand loyalty, at least to me, that I do with Nike. I don't think to go directly to Asics for a product like that. But because when I typed Nike quarter zip in Google or quarter zip dry fit or whatever I did, Asics came up and I was like, oh, this is the price I want. It looks good. And it just shows the power of what you do um, and, and your colleagues in the field of, and how important that is, especially, I think, with consumer products. Now... I wonder if the calculus is any different for you when it's a brand like the beauty product you just mentioned. It's a newer product and maybe they have dozens or hundreds of followers, maybe even a few thousand followers on Instagram or on social. And how is that calculus maybe different than, say, a brand like Mad Happy, right, which has 150,000 plus. It's one of your clients. Um, how is the calculus different when you're working with a new brand versus an established brand? Or maybe it's, it's still a similar approach. 
It's a great question. I I would really bucket it even further. I would say that there's new brands that are up and coming, um, kind of how you characterize them. Not a lot of followers, not a lot of purchases yet. There are established brands. And then there are the mad happies of the world, which I would say are a little bit more um, in pop culture. Um, and they all act very differently. So new brands, it is a lot about convincing people to try a product that they haven't heard of before. It is a lot of pitching to customers. Um, and so therefore you're spending a lot of time on paid social advertising. Sometimes we work with other agencies that are doing influencer marketing for these brands. It's a lot about getting the name out there and, and pitching people. When it comes to an established brand, like the one that you mentioned, the Asics and Nike example, a lot of times it's just being at the right place at the right time, right? Your brand is already established. We just have to make sure we remind people that you're around and you're relevant and you have a good product. Um, Mad Happy, another case, is a very different situation where they get so much organic exposure. They get so much PR every time they do something because their brand loyalty is so strong um, that it's a, it's a very different equation. It's almost like we need to remind people when products come out. Um, but when we remind people, they take action much faster because they know that Mad Happy products run out quickly or they know that it's going to sell out. Um, and I think that there's this like whole new generation of companies starting that all think about drops and they think about limited edition stuff. And so for those companies, the equation is more of like, how do we tell people that drop has occurred as opposed to having to convince people that this is something they should buy. It's already high in demand. It's just mm, yeah. learning people that it's available right now. Got it. That makes sense. So as you're coming up with these strategies, whether it's for Google or Facebook, whatever it may be, how do you know when what you're doing is succeeding, whether it's not succeeding, it's failing, or whether it needs more time in order to determine? It's a great question. I think um, one of the things I've come to understand or learn, you know, with my past experiences and now at IcePop is you need to understand industry benchmarks to understand if you're succeeding or not succeeding. Um, and the reason why I say that is because a skincare line has very different benchmarks than an apparel brand. Skincare, you know, you might just want to break even on the first purchase because you know it's a replenishment category and people will come back two months later, three months later and replenish and then you make a lot of profit. Whereas in apparel, you know, if someone buys a sweatshirt from Ben Hanani's brand, they might not buy another one for three months, right? They might, they might not buy another one ever or maybe they buy one in a year from now. So just to give an example in skincare, maybe on Facebook, I know we're successful when we're at a 2.5 X revenue on ad spend as the metric, right? For every dollar we put in, we bring $2.5 back and we know we're like break even. Whereas in apparel, I might target closer to a four or five X for every dollar I put in, I bring four or $5 back out and there I'm making profit. I'm actually making money. Um, so I think that's one factor, like knowing the baseline metrics for every industry. So you don't overreact when you see numbers are different across accounts. Um, the other is, you know, can you successfully scale? And I think that's the, the most important part. So, you know, we might work with a brand, um, and they come to us when they're doing $20,000 in revenue per month, $50,000 per revenue per month. Um, 
great, we can maintain that, maybe improve the revenue and ad spend. But the real question is, can we take them to six figures per month? Or can we take them to eventually seven figures a month? And that's when you know when you're successful, right? When you can see similar, if not same results as you spend more money um, and, and you can scale up a brand's you know, revenue and follower base and all of that. Um, if you have a hard time scaling, then you probably need to rethink the strategy. You probably need to rethink the way you're approaching it. Um, and you're not as successful as you think you are. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think what you're saying about having realistic expectations for your industry is very interesting to me because I've seen a lot of people both on Twitter and even among friends I know who are founders and building startups. Now there's a lot of frustration when it comes to seeing results on whether it's Facebook ads or Google ads. And I I don't know, have you, have you seen the same frustration among small businesses? And I guess from what I see, it's like, if you have a lot of money to put in, like if you have, let's say 50,000 plus to put in, you will get results. But for the small business that has like 10 grand, 20 grand of a budget to do on this, I think it, it's, it can feel tricky and, and it's easy to feel lost and not know where to start. So for people in that situation, what are some of the solutions if you don't have a ton of money to spend um, in terms of getting started with what you're talking about? It's a great, it's a great point. I think there's a couple things on back there. So the first thing is, I think one of the most challenging things that I face when I work with small businesses is that they haven't worked at the Tinders and the Googles and the tech worlds, uh, the tech companies of the world. And the reason why I bring that up is because when you work at Tinder and you work at these other companies, you're almost trained to think a certain way, which is we need an A-B test to run for two weeks before we get statistical significance. We need attribution to kick in. We need blah, blah, blah. We have all these things that we, that kind of allow us to get a better understanding of the data and not react too quickly. And I think one of the things I see with business owners that are small business owners that are trying this for the first time is they're refreshing Facebook every 10 minutes, every hour. And that is the most dangerous thing to do. It's the most dangerous thing to do because, you know, Facebook even tells you themselves, it takes seven days to get attribution for um, the ads you're running today. It takes seven days later to fully understand what happened from today, right? Someone opened a link and maybe tomorrow they bought it or someone opened a link and they saved it and then they sent it to a friend. And those things take time, right? People don't see an ad and make a purchase instantly. That's not natural. That's not normal. Um, so you need context. And I think I'm very lucky. I got that training and, um, that helps me understand the numbers a little bit better, but I would say the other thing that you brought up is around budgets and scale. Um, and what I'll say is that if you're a brand new business that just launched this month, next month, whatever it is, you think that you could just spend money on Facebook and get results. It's, it does not work that way. It's going to be very challenging and very painful. And I don't recommend that. What I recommend for brand new businesses is to really build a community. It's to really build an audience. And that's tough for me to say, because again, I don't work in that side of the world too much. I focus mainly on paid. But what I can tell you is the best brands I work with have a base, have a foundation. And it's much easier when you have that data to give data to Facebook, to give data to Google and be like, look, these people are passionate about our products. Help us find more people like that. 
But if you have no data, if you have a hundred purchases you started a month ago, you're going to have a very painful time figuring out, you know, who that customer is. And I don't think that's how really good brands are built. I think they first find product market fit with a certain demographic and then they scale. Um, however, if you're a business that's doing 20 to $50,000 a month in revenue, um, and your budget, like you said, is five to $10,000 a month, I don't think it has to be painful. I think that's the sweet spot. And that's the spot that we like to work with. We like to help companies who are small businesses that have product market fit and we help them scale. And I think that's where, you know, first of all, having perspective on when to look at the data and how to look at the data matters. Um, working with a good, you know, media buyer or agency can help a lot. Um, but those brands are the ones that are the most exciting in my opinion. Um, they found something, there's passionate people about it. And now you just have to tell their story to the rest of the world. And, uh, I think those are the most exciting brands to work with those small businesses. That's promising to hear. Cause on Twitter, there seems to be a lot of angst. So it's good to know that there's hope. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I think the landscape is shifting rapidly right now and it's going to become a little bit more challenging. Um, just for some context for everyone who's listening, like Apple is putting out a really big update in the next couple of weeks in the next month where they're going to tell consumers on iPhones that they are being tracked through websites, through apps, and they're going to ask customers to opt in to that as opposed to opt out like it's like it has been for the past decade. Um, and that's going to cause a lot of problems for attribution. That's going to cause a lot of problems for tracking and people are going to have to get crafty. And again, they're going to have to look at the numbers in a different way and not overreact when they look lower than they expect. Um, and again, that's when I think like working with an experienced media buyer and analytics team can help because um, it's going to become a lot more challenging the next few years. Um, but I would say again, that those small businesses that have product market fit, that have a really unique product, that have a really passionate base are the ones that it's the, the best to work with. It's not, I actually don't think the companies that come to me with a lot of money and say we're launching in a month are the easiest to work with. I think it's the opposite, really. <laughs> I think yeah. small businesses are much better and much more fun to work with. Interesting. And so in addition to this Apple point you brought up, what are some of the big changes you're seeing in digital advertising and how are you adapting your process to those changes? I think there's a couple really interesting things going on. So the first thing I like to call out and talk about is the fact that we're in this new age where people are Instagram first or TikTok first, as opposed to Facebook first. And the interesting thing about that is when me and you signed up for Facebook a decade ago, we went in and we said, you know, we go to this high school, we go to this college, we like Harry Potter, we like all these things. We gave Facebook structured data about who we are as people. We said we're in relationships. We said, you know, what our jobs are. And Facebook had a lot of structured data that made their ads tool very, very amazing to use, right? I could go in Facebook right now and say target people who went to USC, who studied this, who make this income, um, who like Harry Potter. And I can do that, right? As we move to this Instagram and TikTok first world where profiles are not as dense with structured data, we have to rely a lot more on, on Instagram and TikTok and Snapchat using image recognition and using um, like inference models to understand what we're interested in and what we're passionate about. And as an advertiser, it becomes a little bit less, um, let's say reliable than structured data where you know the user actually typed it in. So that's one interesting change. And I think 
you know, Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and all these companies have amazing engineers that do know how to understand who you are as a person from the images you're uploading and from the likes you're putting. Um, but it is different than structured data. Um, the second interesting thing I think is this shift towards TikTok away from Facebook. Um, and in the digital marketing world, I think there's two pieces to this equation. One is that TikTok has actually built a really impressive ads manager. It's almost an exact copy of Facebook and they've done it very, very quickly. Um, whereas companies like Twitter and LinkedIn have not been able to copy Facebook's ads manager as well. Um, I would say that like Facebook, Snap and TikTok are very similar. The other ones have fallen, fallen back. Um, and it's very impressive what they've built. Um, and so I do see a lot of companies in the next five years moving to TikTok as a new channel for advertising. Um, I think that this idea that TikTok is a younger demographic is changing very rapidly. I think many more millennials and older groups are moving to TikTok and soon they will have a very similar kind of um, demographic than like Instagram does currently. Um, but the more interesting part of TikTok right now for the next year is the organic um, advertising happening on TikTok. So TikTok, uh, their algorithm is different than Instagram's where Instagram, you follow people um, and you see their stuff. TikTok is all about virality and um, things that are trending. And so a lot of interesting things are happening where influencers with 5,000 followers go viral and now they have 10 million views on a video. And you're like, wow, that's insane. So how do we use that as digital marketers? Well, we can go to influencers on TikTok that were not influencers on Instagram and say, um, hey, you have 5,000, 10,000 followers. You create really good content. We can pay them in product or we can pay them a small fee and incentivize them to make good creative and videos and they can go viral. And the cost per impression is much, much lower than it is on advertisement. Right. We can pay a hundred bucks for a video that gets a million views. That's insane. You can never get that by paying for ads. So that's a really interesting thing that's happening right now. And TikTok's actually helping facilitate it. So TikTok actually has a platform where you can like search for influencers and make deals with them, which Facebook and Instagram never did. They never leaned into that. So TikTok is leaning into this whole influencer marketing thing. Again, brands and agencies like us are reaching out to influencers ourselves and making these deals happen. And they have their ads platform. Um, so I think in short, TikTok is changing the landscape. And I think TikTok's gonna become a very important player um, organically right now, but also for ads in the next five to 10 years. To your point, I think for millennials at least, it feels like TikTok is starting to become what Instagram was for us back in the day. It has the same fun and excitement when we tap that app where I think Instagram is now feeling like Facebook where it's it's a little staid it's a little uh I don't know it just doesn't have the same fun that uh, like scrolling through it is not the same uh pleasant experience I think it once was for many people and TikTok to your point has found a way to not just capture the fun but also lean into these other areas like making deals directly with influencers that that it seems like other platforms just haven't embraced for whatever reason. Before we go into rapid fire questions, I want to quickly give you an opportunity. If you were at any of these major platforms, what one big change would you institute? And I want to preface by saying we spoke a while ago and I remember we were talking and you literally 
suggested a feature that Instagram then adopted like a week <laughs> later, which was you, we, you and I were talking and you're like, how come on Instagram, if somebody wants to search Coachella, like you, you find all these random photos, but like, that's such an opportunity for the shopping area where you can search like Coachella and then that flower crown will come up. Like they just hadn't put two and two together in the way you were talking about. And I'm, I'm butchering the amazing concept you, you pitched so articulately, but basically Instagram then went and did that where now you can essentially do what you were saying. So if there's one feature that you personally could institute at any of these big platforms, whether it's Facebook, Google, Instagram, TikTok, and it doesn't have to be ad related. What, what would you change? Oof, that's a tough one. I think I'm still very passionate about social e-commerce, social commerce. Um, and I think Instagram has made strides, like you said, um, just opening it just to give me some ideas. Uh, I think one thing I'm unimpressed with is the feed, the shopping feed, the tab that they've added to their, their app. Yeah. I think it's been a dud so far. And yeah. I never root against Mark Zuckerberg because he is an amazing operator, but I do think that that feed needs a complete redesign to make it a lot more engaging, a lot more interesting. Um, but the other thing I think is um, they haven't really leaned in to the live shopping experience as much as I thought they would. And uh, you know, I think a lot of people are talking about this, but live shopping is very popular in China and is very popular in other markets. And I think we're moving towards that. And so I would redesign this page. I would make it a little bit more like e-commerce, but then I would also add in live shopping experiences where I can go on and see, you know, some of the uh, apparel accounts I follow are live streaming their new collection and I can watch it and I can buy it if I want to. Um, and so, yeah, I, I'm very bullish on social commerce. I don't think we're there yet, but I think we're, we're getting there. And I think in the next two to three years, we'll, we'll start all shopping on Instagram, on Pinterest, on TikTok, um, and we won't go to Nordstrom or Macy's to do our shopping. Oh, fascinating. So the, the direct to consumer sector will become a little more nuanced where we go. Pinterest might be our go-to. Oh, yeah. that's fascinating. So, yeah, we haven't even touched on Pinterest. That's a whole other fascinating conversation. I think that's like the sleeper right now, although it's getting a lot of attention as it rightfully deserves. But I think over the past year, it's suddenly re-emerged into everyone's consciousness in a new way. I think beyond just, oh, it's good for redesigning my kitchen. I think it's, on it's taken on new meaning. For a second, I yeah. think that um, every social media platform is trying to win this shopping war, which yeah. is very exciting for us as an agency because we love these features. But you yeah. see Pinterest now has a shopping tab. You see Instagram has a shopping tab. Um, TikTok has an amazing integration with Walmart where people can shop live videos. And so I think the next three years are gonna be all about that, are gonna be about which of these companies can A, get people to window shop and then B, change that habit to search-based shop. And I think that's why Instagram built that feature I was talking about, about the, the search. So after they hopefully convince people that they can window shop on Instagram and come browse and find stuff, people will start to think as Pinterest and Instagram as shopping platforms, and they'll come in with intent. They'll be like, oh, you know that party I have to go to next weekend? Let me see what you know sneakers I can find. And you come on Instagram, you come on Pinterest, you type in Nike, you know, blazer sneakers, and you see all the results and you make a purchase there. And 
To really drive this point home, yesterday, Shopify just announced that Shop Pay is now an option to purchase on Instagram and Facebook. So if you are a Shopify seller on Instagram or Facebook, and I've obviously bought from many Shopify stores, I can with one click use Shop Pay to check out on Instagram now, which is crazy. So all signs to me are telling me that the next three years is gonna be about social shopping. We'll have to see, but it sounds fascinating. We'll wrap up real quick with some rapid fire questions. Sure. Firstly, what's an app you can't live without? And let's say not an app that comes with the iPhones, so not like notes or reminders, <laughs> but another one. I feel like in this you know, current climate, I have to say Robinhood. I mean, just to be oh, a pro culture, you, <laughs> culture, you need to check Robinhood every day. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't know. I'm happy with my Schwab account, but I'm happy you're happy with Robinhood. Um, secondly, who would you like to play you in a movie about your life? Let's go with uh, Sasha Baron Cohen. <laughs> All right. <laughs> if you could wake up tomorrow having gained one skill or ability, what would it be? Is this like a superhero skill or ability or sure, just, it could be a superpower? Yeah. I think being able to read people's minds would be incredible. Like being able, or at least being more like perceptive to, you know, how people are feeling and, and what they're thinking. Where's a place you haven't been to yet that you hope to visit? Definitely Japan. Japan's on the top of my list. Um, I haven't been there yet. What's a song you like to jam to right now? Um, you know me, Ben, it always comes down to Drake. <laughs> um, so I'll say, uh, behind bars by Drake. All right. And lastly, where can people learn more about your work and follow you on social media? Sure. Um, on Twitter, my handle is Jordan Benef, J-O-R-D-A-N-B-A-N-A-F. On Instagram, you can follow my company account, IcepopHQ, or you can follow me, Jordan Banna. Um, and yeah, that's basically it. Instagram and Twitter is where I spend most of my time. Perfect. And if you're curious about the pod, you can check us out on Instagram at HDYDPod. Thank you, Jordan. This was super informative and it's always fun to talk with you. Thanks for having me, Ben. I appreciate it. Of course. 